Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. At Radiolab, we love nothing more than nerding out about science, neuroscience, chemistry. But, but we do also like to get into other kinds of stories. Stories about policing or politics, country music, hockey, sex of bugs. (laughs) Regardless of whether we're looking at science or not science, we bring a rigorous curiosity to get you the answers. And hopefully make you see the world anew. Radiolab, adventures on the edge of what we think we know wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia. And I'm Chris. Today's episode is with Mario Slauser, co-founder and former CEO of Oscar Health and current president of technology. He is joined by Julie Yu of A16Z Bio and Health. Mario's first startup, an online games company, inspired the founding of Oscar. As he explained, he saw firsthand the power of influencing member behavior and thought about how that could be applied to improving health outcomes in the context of an insurance company. The biggest motivation, honestly, was the fact that when we were doing our games, these were online social games, we really realized that incentives played a huge role in influencing member behavior, player behavior. And I thought the insurance company is the only entity in the healthcare system that has the power of deploying these kind of tools as well. It sees what people are doing and you're seeing the claims and everything else. And it can change the benefits and the reimbursements. It can influence both the members and the provider side as well through changing all these rules as they sort of like go along and and define plan designs and and whatnot. He and Julie also discussed how AI could influence insurers. They discussed all the possibilities for AI-driven improvements, including a more personalized health insurance plan. And I think on the growth and retention sides, the long-term vision there has to be benefitless benefit designs, which effectively means... You know, you just join a plan and, you know, there's no copay there or whatever. There's no deductible there or whatever else. The thing just learns who you are and how you utilize. And it gives, it tells you one thing, which is it will, it will more heavily constrain your choices. But mm-hmm. if you are willing to follow its recommendations, it will it essentially will create a better outcome for you and it will save you money. It will make it more affordable for you. I think that has to be it the thing we we are pushing towards. You're listening to BioEats World for May 16Z. Well, it is always a pleasure to jam with you, uh, Mario Schlosser, we, who is the founding CEO of Oscar Health, and uh, now it's president of technology. And we'll, we'll learn more about what that means in a second. But um, Oscar is what I refer to as a neocarrier, a digital native health plan that was really founded to use technology to transform both the innards, the, the sort of operations of, of how the health plan works, but also to obviously transform the consumer experience layer, which I think is what Oscar is best known for. So we're now, what, 11 years into the Oscar journey. And so much has changed, both on kind of the healthcare stage with respect to regulation and different tailwinds uh, and even headwinds, of course, uh, with respect to what's happened in the last few years, but also uh, mainly kind of recent advancements in technology and AI. 
if you were to start Oscar today, you know, 11 years later, with all of the advancements that have been made in technology and AI, how would you go about doing it? And so before we dive into that, let's actually start with your intro, Mario. Tell us actually about your new role and, and what's your new mandate as the president of technology of Oscar Health? So I used to run the company as a whole, as a CEO, founding CEO, that's a nice term actually. But um, at the beginning of this year, actually in April of this year, I handed that job over to Mark Berlini, who used to run Aetna, of course. And I, there's a lot of things that I love doing, I have loved doing in the last 10 years, 11 years really now, um, that I want to focus more on. Uh, and that's really in running engineering, product and data science. Uh, and that is what I'm doing in the new role. I really oversee all of our engineering teams and product teams and data science uh, as well. And that's been, for me, really fun on the one hand, but it also really ties into what needs to happen in the business next in two different ways. And we can unpack this all in, in the conversation now. One, because the biggest question for anybody in digital health is always, how does your technology drive your business metrics? You know, healthcare is not an area where uh, you have to rediscover how a business works. You know, there's an existing business model for insurance companies. And so how do you affect those metrics in that existing business model? That's one big question that we always get. And that I think I can answer them more emphatically in this role. And the other question is uh, around what we call plus Oscar, meaning we have an ambition of taking the platform we've built and making it more available to others in the system, in the healthcare system and uh, shifting the business more towards software as a service. And uh, I can do more of that also, I think, in that new role. I don't know that there's a lot of people I know who wake up one day and say, I want to build an insurance company from scratch. I'm actually curious, you, you guys had identified an opportunity around the advent of ACA, I think at the beginning of Oscar, that drove your desire to build a business in this area. What, what gave you conviction to be a health plan versus anything else you could have been in the ecosystem to go after that opportunity? So it was not actually even the ACA. That was a really incredibly fortuitous timing coincidence. It was honestly the fact that, um, well, one, I was looking for something to do. <laughs> Josh, my co and I had a previous startup that ended up being at that time a very successful online gaming company, social gaming company, particularly popular in Latin America, actually, a company called Vostu. I had written the original code for that, and I had helped to design the original games for that. At some point, it took off when Facebook opened its social channels and bunch of other social networks started accepting games on them. And so um, I did that for a couple of years. And then we made a whole bunch of mistakes around, you know, getting a lawsuit with Zynga. And so the board fired me and, um, and I had to, to find something else to do. And so Josh and I were sort of licking our wounds and uh, having a coffee in New York. And he said, we should start an insurance company. And he had looked into the idea a little bit. It was related to the fact that he was starting Thrive Capital at the time. He had sprained his ankle playing basketball, was upset about that experience he had. My wife and I were going through our first pregnancy uh, and the idea of doing something that people hadn't done before, of starting a tech-driven health insurance company, really, it was no insurance company started at that time, predates, predates all of the ones you would know nowadays, really appealed to me. And uh, the biggest motivation, honestly, was the fact that when we were doing our games, these were online social games, we really realized that incentives played a huge role in influencing member behavior, player behavior. And I thought the insurance company is the only entity in the healthcare system that has the power of deploying these kind of tools as well. It sees what people are doing and you're seeing the claims and everything else, and it can change the benefits and the reimbursements. It can influence both the members and the provider side as well through changing all these rules as they sort of like go along and, and define plan designs and, and whatnot. And that to me was the original motivation. And then in the summer of 2012, the Supreme Court reaffirms the Affordable Care Act, the individual mandates. I saw that somewhere, sent an email to Josh and actually Will Gabrick at the time, who was at Thrive, who's now obviously a big part of Stripe. 
saying, this seems like it's very relevant to us. There's an individual market that's being created from the ground up and we should try to play in that thing. And so that then became the real kickoff for Oscar. Then we're like, okay, we got to become an insurance company and whatever. One last story on this that I think is elusive and goes to your question as to what to do differently, what not to do differently. At that time, there were relatively few fintech players still. I mean, there was PayPal, whatever, but there were few fintech players trying to be a bank, a neo bank. There was Bank Simple, for example. And Bank Simple was built on top of, I think, Bancorp. Uh, and Bancorp essentially white labeled, I think, checking accounts and debit cards. But that was it. We were using that thing and we realized that they were incredibly dependent on the feature roadmap that Bancorp had. They were launching, I think, you know, this thing where you take a picture of a check and then a check would get whatever up, uploaded um, only after Bangkok gave it to them. And so to us, it was a huge motivation to say, if we do this, we have to be our own insurance company because only then can you control the infrastructure and you control the, you know, the capital, the reserve capital and the plan design and things like that for real. That was a novel thing at that time that we, as I mentioned, there were no other insurance company startups. I think it's the first newly licensed insurer, commercial insurer in New York State in 25 years or so. I would not change that. That was a huge part of it. So anyhow, we became an insurance company. We control all of that. And I think now it's working. It took a long time, but it's in a good place now. Yeah, amazing story. When people say, you know, healthcare is a $4 trillion industry, the vast majority of that is services, administration, you know, all the components. And very little of that is actually monetized as a standalone software play. And so, you know, to really get credit, to get economic credit in this industry, oftentimes you do have to go full stack. And I think um, everything that you described sort of represents that. If I were in the room on day one of Oscar and like I saw the whiteboard that you guys had on like what you need to build, what were all the like jobs to be done that you guys considered as part of an initial build of a health plan? There's an actual chart that I had in the very, very first presentation I put together, right? I used to work at McKinsey and there's a slide format I just took out of McKinsey at the time. And it had one chart. Um, that showed the years 2015, 2014, 15, 16. And it had a bunch of bubbles on it of the different functions that you needed to do to be an insurance company. And um, it would sort of like, cut over these three years, would color more and more of these bubbles in such a way that it implied that we are doing it ourselves. And so the, the plan was basically initially have a third party do almost all these components, different third parties. We had one table that listed all these functions of an insurance company and the names behind each function of the the vendor or the the partner, whatever we would want to have this function do, and then the plan was to by twenty sixteen completely insource all this and get rid of all the third parties essentially. And so these bubbles on this initial or these these entries in that table originally were: we needed a network, we needed administration of claims, payments of claims, we needed some sales channels, you know, brokerages or whatever other ways of of interfacing with the exchanges. Right, the exchanges were the marketplaces the government was building. We needed some utilization managements. We needed some fraud, waste, and abuse managements. Uh, and, and we needed customer service. We needed plan design. Those were all the components in there. Initially, really, very few of them were in-house. Uh, but in, in all these countries, we, had, we, we negotiated the clause in the very beginning that we could eventually buy that thing out. Um, so in the TPA contract from the very beginning, we had in there that we would eventually say, we can buy the source code and bring all these operations in-house. And we did that um, in February 2017. That was, we insourced customer service first. Customer service was actually outsourced for the first year or so. Uh, we insourced that in the middle of 2015 with the first membership on January 1st, um, 2014, mid-2015, brought that in. And then we insourced claims in February 2017. And the reason why that is so interesting is because literally this week, we finally switched off that system we've been running in-house since February 2017 
um, in the first couple of states. We always do state by states and roll out of new parts of our stack. And there were still some remnants of this old system in the stack since February 2017. And they finally got shut off for the first couple of states after now, what is it, um, you know, six and a half years. That's how long it took to replace all this thing. And it's not for a want of um, you know, engineering intelligence or whatever. I think we have fantastic engineers and smart, whatever, everything else, right? But it just takes this long. And um, uh, it, partly because you're operating a live system um, and partly because it's just, it is complicated. It's more complicated than you think. There is always this question of what bar do you measure yourself against? And I think if the bar is who started with us in early 2014 and who's still around, then the survival rate of Oscar way outpaces something like uh, 97% of the insurers that started in the ACA back then. I think the fact that we have visibility into everything that's happening played a big role in that. That's amazing. You listed out all the different uh, sort of internal operational pieces that you said you would bring in uh, from a third party. Were there any things that you said, but this we're actually going to build in-house from day one because we, we, we know that this is going to be the center of gravity of differentiation for Oscar. Again, going back to the consumer dimension of this, that's what you guys are known for. Was there part of the tech stock something that you guys had conviction to build from day one, or were there also components of that that you outsourced? The original plan was, this is the, the classical, um, I think, technology thinking, um, that we thought that the components that, that every insurer has to use, like paying claims, for example, there are not a lot of reasons why we would be better at them initially than the incumbent service providers in the, in the system. So we thought it makes sense to outsource all these components. And then we would want to be that layer around it. We would want to have real-time data insights into our claims, but the claims could get paid by somebody else. Uh, we would want to have real-time insights and control over clinical guidelines, but then the utilization management can be done by somebody else. Um, as long as we saw everything flow into one coherent data lake, we could really focus on building websites, mobile app, you know, like nice EOBs and, and you know, expansion of benefits and plan designs and all these kind of things. And I, that does not work in healthcare. And I actually think it does not work to this day, really. And it's one of the big issues that that's, um, people encounter the more parts of a given healthcare stack they want to control, um, which is sometimes why it's much easier in healthcare to just not try to replace a bigger parts of a stack, but just focus on very, very narrow areas, right? If you are a risk-based provider practice, for example, you're effectively an insurance company. You don't have to do plan design. You maybe don't you do less customer service or whatever else, but you have to do you have to keep track of your medical loss ratio, your out network claims, your reserving, your IBNR, all those kind of things. Your network, even your network contracts, there's provider practices who have network contracts in, in certain state, in certain areas. Um, and so you have to replace a pretty big part of that stack. And the problem to this day is that you cannot stitch together vendors in the way you would stitch together APIs in building a technology app. It's still not, not possible. There's the, the frameworks don't talk. The data definitions are incoherent. The information is not real time at all. And most importantly, uh, vendors are still not used to accepting action triggers in, in real time. I think that's probably the biggest issue. We've made some progress on data data compatibility or interoperability, whatever. You can get more data out of systems now, but to trigger an action in somebody else, in some other vendor, is still extremely, completely up in the air with everything. And so the original, again, idea for Oscar was be that layer, the visualization, whatever else, and you know let the excellent vendors do everything else. That's just not been the case. That's super helpful overview of kind of 
what are health plans? What do they do? What are the moving parts behind the scenes? You've already highlighted a number of areas where there's like an obvious AI opportunity that I want to kind of double click on. Clearly you've been spending a ton of time thinking about how to apply AI to Oscar. You know, so what, what would be your stack rank of the areas that if you were to build entirely from scratch today from you know, a health plan that's leveraging modern AI, um, where would you sort of point that arrow initially? What are kind of like three things maybe that you would point that arrow at today? Yeah, it's hard to stack rank it, honestly. But um, to start a little bit high level, the obvious areas in a, inside of a health plan where you can apply machine learning and LMs whatever in all kinds of ways really in just making everything faster and more efficient um, and more automated. Health plans are probably one of the most unique industries in the sense that you have a lot of unstructured data and a lot of structured decision-making. The structured decision-making is in the claim system and in utilization managements. And both of those are essentially giant rule bases. Right? Utilization management, if you ever looked at clinical guidelines, and you can look at the ones on the OSCAR website, by the way. These are all public. It's an interesting thing, right? It's, um, exactly how we decide on, on authorizing this surgery versus that surgery. Those are giant rule bases. Same for the claim system. It's like lots of if this, then that, in a sense. I don't think those will cease to be rule bases, by the way. Um, so uh, there are people trying to say, can we just use an LM instead of the claim system? Or can we use an LM instead of the instead of UN? That I think is going to be very hard, partly because you have to have full transparency into why you made certain decisions in certain ways, and they have to be fully deterministic in all those kind of things. Yeah. That's not what LLMs are, right? I have one tweet um, from a few months ago where I just tested the inherent randomness in GPT-4. Um, even if you turn the temperature all the way down to zero. And it's incredibly fascinating. If you try to have it generate a sort of self-referential, you know, list of 10 numbers, or whatever, it'll start being of difference in the fourth or fifth number every single time, because there is some weird randomness still in that thing. And that's just not how you can pay a claim. That's just not going to fly anytime soon. Now, what you can do is you can replace important endpoints in these systems um, with LMs. And so in our case, for example, uh, we have one nifty tool internally where we can we take a contract or we can describe a contract and that can compile into our claim system internal description language. We build an internal um, description language that describes all the benefit designs and payment designs and stuff like that. And so you essentially go from one language, natural language, to another language, a more heavily typed, and more heavily constrained language. And that then goes and does the claims payments or whatever else. That, I think, is a very good way of thinking about application of LLMs in, in admin. That's, all, that's the biggest buckets. What we're doing there right now is all very heavily human-in-the-loop driven. You know, we have a summarization of lab test results in our Oscar Virtual Medical Group. You now we have the Oscar Medical Group is about 150 caregivers. And whatever they get a lab test, get an automatic summary written by GPT-4, and they can edit it, whatever, stuff like that. We have uh, a whole bunch of other stuff in the works along the lines of automating care journeys. And one of the issues with this sort of a fascinating subsets of, of, I think, healthcare, everybody who comes into healthcare from a technology point of view always thinks, oh, we should just automate care journeys, right? Like, I, Mario, have an issue, whatever, and should be pretty clear what I got to do next, you know? And so I just have a thing tell me, a state machine that I get, you know, move through that just tells me in each state differently what should I do next and maybe I get some money for it or some other incentive for it and whatever else. And that's still, there's still no good solution for that. And I think on the growth and retention sides, the long-term vision there has to be benefitless benefit designs, which effectively means 
you know, you just join a plan and, you know, there's no copy there or whatever. There's no deductible there or whatever else. The thing just learns who you are and how you utilize. And it gives, it tells you one thing, which is it will, it will more heavily constrain your choices. But mm -hmm. if you are willing to follow its recommendations, it will it essentially will create a better outcome for you and it will save you money. It will make it more affordable for you. I think that has to be the thing we, we are pushing towards. There is so much in costs you could still reduce from just going to the right side of service with an existing utilization pattern that if we can give some of that cost back to you as a member, there's clearly five, 10% savings or so in there on the, on the entirety of the US healthcare system, which of course we can pass back in, in plan costs in as well. That is an area that would benefit a lot from machine learning and, and so on. It's a regulatory question on how much you can do there, but it is certainly, I think it's technically possible and I think it's even regulatorily possible. Yeah, no, that, that is an incredibly compelling vision, that piece in particular, because I think that also gets to like, what is the future of networks? Networks are so monolithic. And then once you layer on top of that, this kind of concept of like, what is a high performance network and use these, you know, metrics to decide which doctors are best at what and steer people based on that. But it seems it's, it's still very monolithic in the sense that you are making a judgment on a doctor across the entire population scale. But who's to know that that doctor is not amazing for you versus for me. And if you do go to that individual, you know, that should influence the the, the overall journey and overall cost equation yeah. for, for you as an individual, but we don't have that data. We don't have that granularity today yeah. because those those systems are so rigid. Actually, one one quick anecdote, and, and you probably know this better than I do um, from, from Kairos even, but uh, what we looked in the past when we had certain doctor's scores and we derived sort of efficiency scores, whatever, internally as well, and we correlate this early on with member satisfaction ratings. And what you see is then mm -hmm. if you chunk a doctor up into, or doctors up into like just kind of four quartiles of uh, cost efficiency, okay? So like um, best quartile is the most cost efficient, worst quartile is the least cost efficient. And you look at, again, member satisfaction against that. Member satisfaction is essentially flat in the first three quartiles, but in the fourth quartile, it goes down quite a bit. And so in other words, members have an ability of spotting quack, quacks, whatever, like bad doctors, just like people mm -hmm. who really yep. want to take their money essentially in that sense. Um, they don't have an ability of distinguishing between doctors who are very efficient at driving them to the best outcomes. And those who are really polite to them, you know, which is an interesting thing, right? And that's, I don't think that that area has advanced all that much. And so what you said just now is extremely true still, you know, there's a lot of opportunity there as well. Yeah, there's also like such a huge impact on potentially access, right? Because, you know, you always say like the best doctors are the ones that are booked out for months. And then the, the only ones that are available are like the crappy ones. Um, but again, that's not true. Because if you actually look at the no. schedule of those doctors that are booked out for months, like it turns out like 30% of them, those bookings could actually be the wrong booking because there's another doctor in that network who could actually do better. And you can sort of, you know, yeah. reallocate utilization in a much more systematic way. So yeah, lots of, lots of implications of that. First of all, you're exactly right. We can still build very non-monolithic rider networks. What needs to be done there is has to go beyond dollar swapping. This is something that insurance companies, um, I think often fall into the trap of and healthcare companies generally, that's um, they do something cool and something interesting but it ends up just being dollar swapping, meaning you trade something that costs a dollar for something else that costs a dollar. But that's obviously not, not sustainable at all, really. Um, and so in the network sites, one thing I've not seen at all is pay providers or uh, payer-provider uh, partnerships where the provider builds benefits unique to the provider into the plan design, like red carpet access, mm -hmm. like preferred scheduling slots, and you know after-hours booking slots and things like that. Those are all regulatorily allowed. 
And it's this is like I you know I have a status with Rida Airlines because I can board early and I don't have to worry about overhead bin or whatever. That equivalence does not exist in benefit plan design around narrow provider networks, and it is a huge opportunity still. The providers are really leaving, I think, value on the table for, and and so do insurers. And so, anyhow, that's an area of of improvements. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, so that's a really exciting idea. Is Oscar doing anything around value-based care? And is that an area where you see opportunity for the application of AI to, again, do things that we could do today that we might not have been able to do several years ago? When we look at all the members of Oscar that are in some kind of value-based care contract, it's about 45% or so. It's a, it's a pretty large chunk. Now, that includes all types of value-based care, including pay-for-performance and, and things like that. It's an upside only. But we also have big contracts with, with both health systems and then, and then provider groups that are full upside and downsides, meaning they really get capitation of the medical loss ratio and then they go. And this is a much more nascent area in the ACA still because people still understand much less well how risk adjustment works. Right? Medicare Advantages, it's honestly comparatively easy to be provide, risk-based provider because you risk code against the governments and any risk code you find, you get paid for. And already the ACA, I think, works better in this way because it's a, you know, it's a zero-sum game and you really have to show you're reducing costs, not just like finding extra disease codes to get paid um, by the governments and by others. And so we are doing it. Um, yes, I think there's opportunities for, for, for language models and AI and, and, and so on, but it's much simpler than that. I mean, most provider groups don't even really know uh, reliably from all the insurance companies to when they last saw the person for a wellness visit or who is still under-coded or, um, you know, who needs to, who has a heater scap, whatever else. And, and when you go to companies that do that take claim data, for example, and, and produce value-based care dashboards, uh, then about 80% of their time will be spent just cleaning up data and maybe 20% of their brain capacity goes into how to then visualize the data and how to remind you of the data and whatever else. And that is not really where the value should be, right? We should be spending more time on how do you show data in more useful ways? How do you drive more insights with it and, and all that stuff? And so, yeah, it's just a word of caution that that's not an area that's being held back by a lack of AI tools. It's an area that's being held back by unbelievably simple lack of piping and connectivity in the healthcare system. I would do something very simple there before you do something very sophisticated there, frankly. Yeah. To that point, um, you know, one of the things that is, is most exciting about a health plan sort of applying AI is just like the hordes of data that a health plan has uh, across its membership that otherwise is really not thought about as kind of a core data asset across the industry. The canonical data set uh, from health plans is obviously claims data. But as we all know, claims data is like only scratching the surface of anything. And in, in fact, could be actually directionally incorrect in many ways because of, you know, the the use of the purpose of that data is, is obviously very specific and not clinical in nature. A, do you agree with that? And, and B, what do you consider some of the, the crown jewels of the Oscar data asset that you think could you know, create an unfair advantage for you all as you build AI versus uh, someone else from the outside trying to do it themselves? Data and healthcare, there's two main issues uh, or data and health plans. One is that health plans tend to not have all the data in one place uh, and very many different sources of truth. So coherence of data is difficult. But the other thing that people also always underestimate is um, the actual ability of the data. I actually don't doubt, you know, United and Cigna, Aetna, whatever, they're rich enough. And they, I mean, look at the amount of money they're printing in every single quarter. They're rich enough to afford all kinds of smart data scientists and, and people, whatever, who do, you know, can run queries the same way we can. And I actually don't doubt that um, there's somebody instead of United that has a fantastic overview of all of their data, you know, and can create great queries or whatever. The problem is that we does anything with this. 
because the frontline systems are so difficult to then get that data back into. Um, the frontline processes are so independently run from all that stuff. And that's how you, again, then get a proliferation of all kinds of workflow tools and, and whatever else that then don't really click all the way through. And so um, I think on the data side, the advantage we have is one, we have a clean core admin stack, right? And we built it over all these years. All right, my last question, Mario. So fast forward a few years and you have sort of non-AI powered Oscar alongside an AI powered Oscar. Two part question. So one is as a member of Oscar, what is the one thing that I will experience that is fundamentally different between those two mirror universes based on AI? And then number two, what is a key, like a, a KPI from just an overall business performance metrics perspective that also would be fundamentally different in the AI universe versus not? If I had to decide on the one thing as a member, it is um, you need to get more affordable healthcare from Oscar. I mean, that's as simple as that. And I think the higher the degree of automation, the more you have a very coherent, very replicable, very systematic way of just paying, which is fundamentally what a payer should be doing, and then do it much faster and so on. And doing those things well, I think, is still the biggest unlock towards also better provider contracts and towards better member experience and things like that. And it's a beautiful, I think, connection between the very back office of Oscar and the backend systems um, and the sort of like front-end memory experience. It's still the case that if you build a cleaner stack, you can get a better memory experience built. It will take you a long time, but it is, I think, to be the, the best thing to do there. And you don't need a flashy button on the website or whatever else to do that. It's all very sort of like trudging through the back office and automating it. And so the degree of automation is that metric I would pay attention to there. Amazing. Mario, here's to a lower cost health plan that has greater automation and efficiency in the future as you guys apply AI to, to your platform. And, and you know, really excited to see also across the industry what both incumbents do as well as obviously startups uh, with respect to these similar strategies. So thank you so much for sharing your insights here and, um, and all the best to you and the team at Oscar. Thank you, super fun to chat, Julie. Great to see you again and uh, look forward to more of this as well. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. Please note that A16Z and its affiliates may maintain investments in the companies discussed in this podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.